Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Deep State Radio, where we are getting together to talk about this massive cyber hack, uh, which has occurred over the course of the past few uh, weeks and months, and uh, which is not as well understood as it should be because it's a really significant event. Fortunately, we've got with us uh, one of our founding friends, David Sanger of the New York Times, noted cyber expert himself. How are you, David? Good to be with you, David. And we have Dmitry Alperovich, who is one of the founders of CrowdStrike, uh, one of the leading experts on computer securities computer security anywhere uh, was one of the first people to sniff out the hack that took place in 2016. How are you, Dimitri? Very well. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, so I think, well, let me, let me start here. Um, uh, David, let me turn to you first. And, and why don't you try to frame this? People know some of the facts. Can you frame it in terms of what you think its significance is? So, Nothing new that we're worried about the Russians getting into government systems. They've been doing this uh, since long before, um, you know, uh, Dmitry was uh, was um, searching for them. Uh, there's been 25 years of uh, this kind of thing. Back to Moonlight Maze, the, the first and famous um, Russian intrusion into um, the Colorado School of Mines, which moved on to, to many defense locations and then attacks in 2008, where they spread um, USB keys around a parking lot at a US base in the Middle East and waited for people to pick them up and put the keys into their computer, into their computer uh, USB slots when they got in, which is how the Defense Department came up with that brilliant anti-Russian defense of uh, putting super glue into the USB slots. Um, and of course they were back in the 2014 to 2015 time period when they um, went after um, the State Department, the White House uh, and um, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, then the 2016 election hack, which I'm sure we'll get back to. And now this. Um, so there's a straight up pattern here. What was different about this is the brilliance of the way they got into the supply chain. Something that people have worried about for many, many years has been a vulnerability for many, many years, but something the US government and private industry has never figured out how to get, get around. And they went in through something called network management software made by a company called SolarWinds that I that few of our listeners had ever heard of. I have heard of them, but just barely before all of this happened. Uh, they're really down in the, the engineering uh, innards of uh, anybody who's running a network, but 
300 and some odd Fortune 500 companies use their um, software. Uh, the New York Times uses the uh, software platform that they uh, got into. Many government agencies do. And the thought here was that they were getting into solar winds because it's used so broadly that if they could alter the update software, the, much the way your iPhone updates overnight when you plug it in next to your, to your bedside table, once they got into that, then they had access into the broader system. So far, everyone's running around saying, thank goodness this was just a surveillance operation done by the SVR, which is a Russian intelligence unit that Dmitry can tell you more about, that in fact does mostly pure intelligence collection. But we don't know yet whether the intelligence collection is just phase one of this entire operation. So Dmitry, similar question, but why should the average American care about this? Well, they should care because this is a hugely impactful espionage campaign um, that has been conducted on an unprecedented scale against our government. And, uh, you know, we've, we've certainly had espionage campaigns that have been hugely impactful to us. Uh, your listeners may remember Aldrich Ames, who's uh, been devastating traitor in the CIA that gave up the entire network of Soviet spies, uh, um, of spies in the Soviet Union, I should say that the CIA had in the 80s, and then Robert Hansen and the FBI that blew the cover on um, uh, the FBI counterintelligence work um, and, and helped the Russians back in the 90s. Um, so those were certainly very, very impactful operations to the intelligence community. Um, this is super broad. That This is the, the concern that you have so many agencies. You had a report just last night that the top officials in the Treasury Department had their emails stolen as a result of this operation. You had the breaks in uh, the State Department, the Pentagon, um, Nuclear Regulatory Agency uh, responsible for, for nuclear weapons. So just uh, a whole slew of um, agencies out there that have been impacted as a result of this, and probably many more that we do not know. And, and, and the worst part is that this was not sort of a, um, a quick uh, uh, scheme where the Russians got in and got out. They were inside of those networks potentially as long as nine months, maybe even longer, um, and uh, remained undetected. Um, so th that is a huge concern. And one more point I want to add to David's excellent description is that all the focus right now is on solar winds, and appropriately so. But we now know for a fact that solar winds was not the only way that the Russians uh, got into all of these networks. That there are other compromises that have occurred, potentially other supply chain hacks. So this is way bigger than uh, and way worse than anyone anticipates today. And um, uh, this is going to be a story that will be unfolding for many months to come. Yeah. So, David, you know, when you think of the breadth of this, uh, the, the next question that comes to mind is what they get. What was the cost of all of this? Apparently, according to everything that I've read, which is to say everything that you've written, um, you know, uh, that they have not gotten into classified networks. Now, Dimitri just enumerated some places that they've gone. They've, they've also gone to places, you know, like the Commerce Department, as you know. That's where you and I first met when I was working at the Commerce Department. And uh, I can tell the you that- have now read the transcripts of all those discussions. Yeah, well, I can, <laughs> right. Well, I can say whoever has been assigned that task is, uh, is has Going been- Going right to the sleep, yeah, right. right. And, and that's the point. There's a lot of the information that's in a lot of these government agencies is just, you know, bureaucratic dross, right? So 
what's the good so, stuff? What are, what, are, what, are, what are we worried they got that was valuable? The first thing is we have not found evidence yet that they've gotten into classified um, networks. But the next thing that everybody in the US government tells you is we really don't know where all they got. And as Dimitri just pointed out, we don't even know all of the entry points that they use because we've only got the solar winds one uh, nailed down. So um, what worries me here is that the same access that gives you entry into a system can be used for many purposes. It can be used to read mail. It could be used to do data manipulation. You know, it's one thing to get into the Pentagon's medical systems unit and read everything, which would be pretty boring. It'd be another thing if you could, if you had the power to change the blood type listing for every soldier and sailor or targeting data or get inside a communications line. We know that uh, they but, were looking- but there's at no evidence system. yet that they've manipulated any data, is there? There is no evidence of that. But the problem when you have access like this is that it's relatively easy to go hide your next steps and build back doors into other things. So part of the difficulty here is almost a psychological one, David, that once they are in the system, you're worried about what they might do. Think back to what we were talking about two months ago with the election. Our concern if they got into the registration system would be, are they just downloading people's registrations or are they changing their party affiliation or their addresses or whatever? And that creates a doubt that makes you mistrust your own system. So you're Joe Biden and in 29 days, you get to come in to take office in the United States with a government unclassified system that you can no longer trust because you're not sure where the Russians are, with data that you don't think has been manipulated, but you're not entirely sure. And to some degree, the psychological impact of them just saying, hey, look, we can get in and own some of this is almost as great as anything that they actually do. Now, we're pursuing some questions about different systems that they may or may not be into, and it's very hard to tell. And of course, um, the Trump administration, which I think might never have revealed any of this, had uh, FireEye, uh, one of the competitors that Dimitri faced when he was still at CrowdStrike, had they not come out and made all this public, I'm not even sure we would know about this right now. Um, a secondary issue that it raises, David, is after all the billions of dollars that we have spent on cyber offense and defense, after an NSA that General Paul Nakasone, who's one of the most experienced cyber warriors in the government, has put much more on the, the offense, you know, by doing persistent engagement and active defense, going into foreign networks. What did we learn here? They didn't see this coming until FireEye called them. That is one of the greatest intelligence failures of modern times in the US government. And somehow there's gotta be some accountability for that. Well, I, I'd like to come back to that in a, in, a, in a second because the response of the Trump administration to all of this has raised its own questions. But uh, Dimitri, coming from the security perspective that you do, um, you're kind of paid to be paranoid. What's your worst case and plausible scenario for the damage done by this? 
I think uh, there's a huge operational damage that's been done. And David is exactly right in terms of Biden administration facing uh, challenges uh, in 29 days. But there are real challenges that uh, the Trump administration is facing now with all these departments and agencies no longer trusting um, their own email systems and, and not sure if the Russians are reading them. And some of them moving all the work to the classified systems, um, which they have more confidence that they're more secure. But uh, that, that also means that it's, it's much more of a pain to communicate with others. You have to be in a skiff to send it out in an email. You can't do it from your house. Uh, and, and not everyone is on classified systems that you want to communicate with. So it, it has an operational effect even today uh, in terms of ability of the government to respond to this um, that, that is quite significant. And um, in terms of what could have happened, uh, I'm absolutely with David on this as well. Uh, someone asked me in the early innings, uh, early days of, of this discovery, what if the Russians had done the same thing here as they had done in Ukraine in 2017, when they also used a supply chain vulnerability in that particular case in a software called Medox, which is a popular tax filing software in Ukraine that corporations use to submit taxes to the government. In that particular case, they backdoored that software and released an update similar to what happened here, but, but unlike here, they actually did destruction. So they released this not petty malware that spread massively throughout Ukrainian government, um, through, through Ukrainian private sector networks, and ultimately escaped out of Ukraine and hit many multinationals like uh, Maersk and, and Merck and, and many other companies that were utterly destroyed. And someone asked me, what if Dimitri, they- Dimitri, which, which Russian group was that that did that? Yeah, that, that was the GRU. Um, that was the yeah. Russian military intelligence. That was not the SVR. Uh, but nevertheless, if, uh, you know, if they had done that here, you know, I, I don't want to overhype this, but, but my answer was we would be at war right now and not a virtual war because literally our economy um, and our government networks would be brought to a standstill and would take many months to, to recover and rebuild. Um, given the level of access that they had uh, in, in tens of thousands of networks around the world um, that they could have destroyed. Again, the organization that did this, the SVR, is not known to do destructive attacks, uh, which is really important. They're a traditional espionage agency, the more professional um, agency than, than, than the GRU, which in many ways has kind of uh, more of a special operations mindset, uh, Spetsnaz in Russian. Um, than than intelligence one, uh, but nevertheless, uh, you know there is a possibility that you have the meeting in Moscow of the Russian National Security Council with all the intelligence agencies and Putin there, and SVR is reporting on the success they've had in gaining this access to the uh, sort of uh, huge number of agencies within R R Russian government, and if Putin had ordered them to to execute a destructive attacks. Regardless of whether they've done it before or not, uh, I don't expect the, them to say no, right? So um, the potential was absolutely there. And um, that is what's, I think, really scary here. So one of the other dimensions of this that raises questions and is a little bit scary, David, has to do with the response of the Trump administration. Of course, this is the administration that shut down key capacity with regard to cyber defense within the NSC. This is an administration that downplayed the attacks of 2016. Uh, this is an administration where the president himself has come out on a regular basis and attributed Russian attacks in the past to other actors and then was kind of radio silent on all of this. And then when he finally spoke out about it, he said, well, you know, it could have been the Chinese. Now, he, he was the only person in the administration who said that. 
even Mike Pompeo, who's uh, typically very loyal and very close to the president, speaks from the same notes as the president. He said it was the Russians. But you do have Trump downplaying this while everybody else is playing it up. And Trump was the one who forced out Chris Krebs from the Department of Homeland Security, who was responsible for technological security there. Um, and so it's led a lot of people to say Trump is ending the same way he started with, with a Russia problem. What's, what's the Trump role in all of this? What are the questions in your mind about Donald Trump's either opening the door to this or his reaction to it? So he is ending his time in office exactly how he began. You know, when I first sat down to go interview him on foreign policy issues during the campaign in 2016 and raised Ukraine, you know, he was immediately apologizing for that and basically saying, why are we being tougher on the Russians than the Germans are and everyone else? And, you know, said he'd be the toughest president on the cyber. Well, the cyber ain't looking so hot this, this week, uh, particularly um, his defenses of it. Was this uh, before or after you gave him the idea for America first? I think it was maybe in one of the same interviews. That's great. Thanks, you David. Know, you know, Dimitri, we, our, we, we our, owe our, David a great deal because he's really given Trump some of his biggest hits. The nation yeah. owes you, David. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rothkopf is on a on a kick to have this engraved on my on my tombstone. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna give I'll give credit to Charles Lindbergh where, where it's due. But <laughs> well, you know, actually, I had raised the question with Trump, expecting him to say, "No, no, I'm no isolationist. I'm no Charles Lindbergh." But he said to me later on in a later interview that he didn't realize that Charles Lindbergh's movement had been called America First. Uh, I think he was thinking of Charles Lindbergh flying around in an airplane. So, uh, yeah. so there you go. Um, but on to your question. Um, the response has been exactly as it's been every time any other Russia issue has been brought up with the president, that this is all being blown up by a media that says Russia, Russia, Russia. How do we even know there was an attack? I don't see an attack, you know? And if you knew there was an attack, it could be a 400 pound guy, um, you know, sitting on his bed. It could be the Chinese. And uh, by the way, I heard CrowdStrike was run by a Ukrainian. I think he was referring to you, Dmitry, but it turns out you're not Ukrainian. <laughs> Unless Moscow has become part of Ukraine. Uh, yeah, no connection there. So, um, so his reaction was exactly as you would expect. The White House was supposed to turn out a statement on Friday last week, which I am told was supposed to say that uh, most of the responsibility for this attack appears to come from Russia. And they pulled back, uh, I guess, because the president expressed so many doubts. It's not entirely clear why it was that um, Secretary of State Pompeo went out and said what he said. And then Attorney General Barr in his um, last press conference before he uh, leaves office uh, in a day or so, um, dug the hole quite deliberately a little bit deeper and said, uh, Mike Pompeo had it exactly right. This is the Russians. So the Attorney General and the Secretary of State offering at least general attribution of this to the Russians. Neither one of them saying, so what are you going to go do about it? 
And the answer is, as long as Donald Trump is there muddying the waters on who did it, it's hard to imagine this government doing anything about it. I thought it was interesting that Biden not only said in his statement that defense is not enough, that we have to get at the capability of our adversaries to do this. And then that Ron Klain, his incoming uh, chief of staff, uh, said on CBS on Sunday that that means not simply doing sanctions and so forth, but going right after the Russian groups that did this perhaps in a cyber way. I suspect that once they are in office, they're gonna discover that it sounds a lot easier to do and is a much better sound bite than it is to do in, uh, in real life because people are gonna say, okay, we strike back at the Russians. Here are the following five cyber operations that General Nakasone can go do. And someone at the end of the table in the sitting room says, okay, that's great, but what happens next? What if the Russians actually have planted little time bombs in the systems they're in? Uh, do you want to be encouraging them to set those off now? So I think the escalation fear will probably keep the, the new administration from being quite as tough as they'd like to sound right now. Uh, Dimitri, whether you think that's yeah, right. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd, like that. To, I'd like to pick up on that and, and add something to the question here, Dimitri, because you know, I saw the, 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 the progression of the Biden team responses from we must have a strong response to we must do sanctions, to we must do more than sanctions. And all of them have had this problem that David cites, which is they are inadequate and nonspecific. What can we do? I mean, we don't have a good doctrine on this. You earlier said, if they had done the same thing they did in Ukraine, we'd be at war. Well, actually, I, I'm not sure that's true. We've seen cases where there have been damaging attacks, and David, Dave, David, and we've discussed it here, for example, when the North Koreans went after Sony, and the Obama administration bent over backwards to characterize it in a way that they didn't have to respond um, in, in, a, in a forceful way or in a kinetic way. We don't have a doctrine for responding to this yet. What would work? Yeah. Well, I would first say, and I was involved in the Sony investigation, was actually the first one to come out there with attribution to North Korea there uh, before the US government. Um, Sony is not the Pentagon, with all due respect to Sony. It's not the State Department. It's not the Treasury. So I think the impact of destroying Sony and destroying key agencies in the US government is, is a little bit different and I think would warrant a much more different response than a, than a movie studio, uh, no matter how, how great um, a movie studio. Uh, but, but I think if I can redirect the question just a little bit, I think it is important for us to actually step back and ask the question, um, not what can we do, but what should we do? Because at the end of the day, at least as far as we know right now, this was an intelligence operation, espionage operation by a foreign intelligence agency of the type that our own U.S. intelligence community does every day and twice on Sunday against our own adversaries. And if you had a situation like this where you had, um, let's say, Kaspersky, a Russian cybersecurity company that could have gotten hacked by the NSA, and then that access would have used to, to, for deep penetration to the Kremlin networks and the uh, networks of Russian intelligence agencies, the NSA would do that in a heartbeat. And I don't think anyone in the White House would tell them not to do it. So I think we need to be a little bit careful not to overreact because 
God knows the Russians have done a lot of things that are norm busting and things that we should be pushing back for. I don't actually think this one, uh, this case is that because I don't think you can have the norm saying it's okay for other countries to do espionage, but just don't be too good at it, which is really the main issue here that it, it was exceptional in terms of scale and, 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 and infiltration. Um, and frankly, uh, we want to be able to do the same things here. And we have used um, uh, supply chain attacks to target others. Uh, one of the most famous cases was released just in the last uh, year where um, uh, the Washington Post did an incredible um, uh, series of articles on how the CIA uh, almost half a century ago bought this uh, cryptographic uh, machine manufacturer in Switzerland and owned it and subverted their cryptography so that they could read uh, all the encrypted communications from lots and lots of governments around the world. Um, that was probably one of the most uh, successful intelligence operations in history. So we want to be able to do these types of things too. And I don't think we want to be setting norms um, that uh, um, uh, really articulate that the, these types of things are off the record. That's not to say that we should do nothing because even though we accept the norm of espionage, when we catch spies, what do we do? We arrest them, we prosecute them, we may escalate and, and uh, do demarches and throw diplomats out of the country, but we typically don't go beyond that. And I think that's a frame of reference that we should be thinking about in terms of both this attack and the precedent sets, but also sort of the bigger issue here, which is that I don't think the Biden administration really not unlike the Trump administration, really wants to get into uh, a conflict, even if it's a sort of a cold conflict with Russia. Because after all, as the, the saying goes, the main thing about the main thing is the main thing, and the main thing is China. And that is a strategic threat of the century. Um, it is a you know, competitor like no other in terms of the threat to this country economically, militarily, and, 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 uh, and in many other ways. And Russia, at the end of the day, is a thorn in our side, but it's a distraction. And you know, I know for a fact that the Biden people do not want to be spending the next four years working on China, on Russia um, to and, and ignoring China because they also appreciate that China is is a number one priority. Well, let me say with respect, uh, Dimitri, and thank you for your answer. But let me say, David, and 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 seeking your response to the same question, uh, that of course the United States government is the largest organization on the planet Earth, and is designed to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And if we can't um, deal with a Russia threat and a China threat simultaneously, we're in big trouble. We have our military designed to deal with at least um, two theater wars. I think we can, we can handle both of those threats simultaneously. I also think that the argument that, well, we want to do this, so let's not be too hard on them, uh, is not going to be satisfactory to a lot of people, particularly coming out of a period of four years in which the argument has been that the Trump administration has been too soft. So let me direct the same question to you, David. What should the Biden, I mean, and I, I recognize you're a reporter and your job is not advising the Biden administration, sure. but what are the options on the table for the Biden administration to do something that actually will have an effect on this and make us safer? So um, I actually think the Biden administration at this point is going to have to go push back very hard, even while acknowledging that we often do what the Russians here have been accused of doing. We do supply chain hacks. Um, Dimitri pointed out one from 50 years ago. I would argue that Olympic Games, the attack on the Iranian system, was essentially a supply chain hack because we were getting into 
an industrial control system that ran some of their centrifuges, putting code into it that, that wasn't supposed to go be there. Um, uh, that's classic supply chain kind of activity here. So um, not new to us, but the history of dealing with Russia is if you under respond, then they're gonna go back for more. And uh, you might argue that even though we have ramped up the response, raised the cost as Nakasone calls it, they came back for more again. So I think this time we're gonna have to push it really, really far. And it can't just be sanctions. It's going to have to go impose some real pain and it's probably gonna to have to impose given what they've come out and said publicly already, um, authorizing Nakasone to basically shut down some big intelligence operations and networks inside Russia for some period of time. And there's gonna be a risk of escalation. I don't think at this point, I think there's very little way given what they've said for them to sort of back out from, from doing that. And then you have to be prepared It's the next step to sort of sit down and say to Putin, okay, now we need some rules of the road because we can both do each other a huge amount of damage. And just as in the nuclear age, we recognize what that precipice looks like, we've got to go recognize what that looks like now, but we will not hesitate to go after you again. And you know, the Obama administration is as guilty as anyone else of turning their back on this because when the Russians did, the White House and the State Department and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Obama administration was not even willing to publicly call them out and say it was Russia. Hey, Dimitri and I were on the phone and we all knew it was Russia and we were writing that it was Russia, but they would not acknowledge that. And I think that helped embolden Putin when he got to the 2016 um, election. Um, given what Biden has said in public, what he said to us when we were filming the Perfect Weapon documentary, and he sort of swings around and says, Putin knows me and doesn't want to mess with me because if he does stuff in our networks, we're coming after him. I don't think at this point he's got a chance, he's got the option to go reproduce the Obama era strategy. And he's got to make himself look in contrast to a president we've had for four years who would allow the Russians to do just about anything. I don't think there are a lot of choices out here. There's only a question of how well can you signal to Putin about how we get off this train. Well, I think that's a, a, a perfect place for us to end this conversation. I don't think... Um, uh, in fact, it will be the end of the conversation because these things are going to come up. Um, and I think as we look forward uh, to the first months of the Biden administration, they're going to have to differentiate themselves from Trump and from Obama in terms of their response to Russia. Whether they will or not is another issue, and we're going to have to watch that closely. Uh, but I think that, David, you really put your finger on it when you suggested that the strong response has as its primary benefit the ability to lead us into a discussion about how to tamp down these things one way or another. Um, and I think, you know, this goes far beyond just hacking. There are broader issues, multilateral issues associated with computer security um, uh, and uh, such as the, the Huawei related issues and so forth. We need a new kind of regime uh, internationally to deal with these things and we need doctrines within governments to deal with these things or we run the reverse risk and that's the thing that concerns me the most which is we say well we do it and you do it and we end up in this period of 
permanent low-grade conflict, what I once wrote about in an article and called Cool War, which is essentially, um, you know, we're not destroying each other, but we're damaging each other all the time. Uh, and that can be quite costly. And of course, that also runs the risk of escalation um, at any given moment. And that's, that's a dangerous risk, right? So we will see. We will see whether the response of the next administration is better than the response has been of the last two administrations. Um, and frankly, I'll throw in the Bush administration because they got the invasion of Georgia in 2008 uh, as, as they were leaving office and their response to that was not And enough. Estonia. And, and, and did not deter um, uh, Putin from further aggressiveness. So we'll see. Hopefully you guys will come back, um, David, on a regular basis. Dimitri, hope, hope you'll come back and join us again for these conversations. Uh, for those of you who are out there listening, we've got more podcasts this week. We've got to look back at 2020 tomorrow with um, not just Ryan Goodman and Kavita Patel, but we've got Kurt Anderson and we've got author of Evil Geniuses and we've got Lori Garrett, who is our COVID specialist. And we've got Juliet Kayyem, who uh, we have on a regular basis here. Uh, and we've got another little podcast, which is uh, going to be kind of a special treat coming out. And, uh, you know, I encourage you to listen in tomorrow, but we're, we're going to try and find a different way to have conversation about the world that uh, is perhaps more accessible to all of you. Um, so watch this space or go to the dsrnetwork.com to find out more about that. Um, and uh, not only uh, have happy holidays, folks, but do your best to stay healthy in this tough environment. Bye-bye.